lives. And uh, this, this week we're going to talk to Christian husbands. Uh, and so uh, as this morning as we open up God's Word and we look at Ephesians chapter 5, I uh, want to just give you a few reminders in case anyone has forgotten since last week. A uh, few important things. Number one, keep your elbows to yourself, right? And uh, convic- uh, co- commit yourself in advance to a standard of grace because Jesus is true to His Word. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Um, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and not look at the log in your own eye? Amen. We all love to read someone else's mail and apply the Scripture that does not apply to us to them, right? And to say, why are you not living up to your responsibility, right? Uh, well, so if you're, if you're a wife, just let me encourage you, keep quiet. Let the Holy Spirit speak. He has a longer arm than you, all right? Um, Secondly, uh, this passage is for our good. It is here because God loves us and because our obedience to it is a part of His project to redeem us and to redeem our marriages from sin and the curse. And third, remember that this whole passage is in fact about the redemption of marriage from sin and the curse. Remember, I said in, in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 16, God tells the woman, your desire will be for your husband, meaning that your desire will be to control him. But he will rule over, that is, dominate you. Now that is the result of sin. That is what marriage looks like. When... Um, when Husband and husbands and wives are controlled by sin rather than controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that is not what God created marriage to be. It uh, becomes that when uh, sin is allowed to flourish in a marriage. So we want to keep these reminders in our heads and in our hearts again as we approach God's Word together. So uh, if you would and if you're able, please stand in honor of God's Word as I read Ephesians Chapter 5, verses 25 to 33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, wives should, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, as with all things in your word, these things are beyond our grasp. 
It is not that they are hard for us to understand, but they are hard for us to put into practice and to lay hold of in our daily lives. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit we might yield to you, that as we experience the filling of the Holy Spirit, that you might work in us and bless even our attempts at obedience to it, that we might see the beauty of your word as it's lived out in our homes. Father, because if the word of God makes no difference in our, in our lives with the people closest to us, people can't see where it makes any difference. Father, we want to make a difference on home court where it really matters. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to be transformed by your word and spirit this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I want us all to pay careful attention to what the text actually says in verse 25. I want to look at it carefully. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now that seems simple enough, but consider this. If you ask most Christians uh, what a husband and wife's respective roles are in marriage, nine out of ten of them would probably say this, that he is the leader and she follows and submits to him. But notice what the text does not say. Verses 22 to 24 command wives to submit, but there's no command here for husbands to lead. Interesting. The command that most naturally corresponds to wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord would be something like husbands lead your wives like Christ leads the church, right? But that is not what we see. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament, and I have looked, does it say, or are husbands ever commanded to lead their wives? Does that shock you? It should. It might be implied, but it's nowhere commanded. Instead, what is commanded is something far, far more challenging. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I think that's significant because whatever leadership responsibility might be implied in a wife's submission to her husband, we can be sure of this, that it looks nothing like worldly leadership. Amen? Now, let me just say this also. There are two great dangers that men face when they get married. One, hang on, hang on. One is this. One is passivity. Passivity. Yes, dear, whatever you want. Whatever you want. And he just kind of rolls over and, you know, zones out with the TV and does whatever, right? He just becomes passive. 
and she becomes, in a sense, the leader of the family. Is that God's design? I don't think so. The other great danger that men face as they get married is that they say, well, I'm the leader, and they become domineering. So just as women can go either into servility where they um, you know, they become Edith Bunker, you know, and they just do everything the, the, that the tyrant of the house, de, you know, demands of them. Or they become unsubmissive and unyielding and in a fight for power, men have a, the same kinds of tendencies in a different way where they become passive, where they become domineering. But here's the thing. The command is, husbands, love your wives. And notice that it follows the earlier command in verse 18 to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why is that important for us to know? Because husbands, if we, and I say that because I am a husband, we are not filled with the Holy Spirit, we won't be able to do what this verse actually calls us to do. Uh, now here's the main point. What's the command? To love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So it means to love your wife completely and self-sacrificially. It means laying your whole life down for her good and her blessing. More on that in a few minutes. But to get clear on what that involves, let's look at the next several verses here on what the text says about how Christ loved the church. Uh, verses 26 and 27 are tied together, and they tell us, uh, first of all, that Christ's death had a sanctifying and a glorifying purpose for the church. Verse 26 is really interesting. Uh, you may not know this, but in every uh, in in for every ancient wedding, there was a custom that before she got married, the bride took a bath. Now, you may not find that all that shocking in a day when there is indoor plumbing, right? You may take a bath every day. In fact, if you don't, I recommend that you start. Um, but, um, but in any case, um, this was something that was an event, as you got married, you wanted to symbolize the fact that you were pure for your husband and you took a bath. Uh, you removed dirt from every part of you. You wanted to be pure and beautiful for your husband. And so Paul is picking up that tradition and tying it to a different one, which is our baptism, which symbolizes the cleansing from sin that Christ's death brings. He calls it the washing of water with the Word because when we believe what the Word of God says about Jesus' death and resurrection, we are supposed to get immediately baptized in water to show outwardly what Christ has done inwardly in our hearts. That just as we believe in Christ, uh, we... Uh, are transformed inwardly. Our hearts are cleansed from sin's power over us. And uh, so then when you get baptized, the 
because you have believed the Word of God, you are showing on an outward way what has happened to you in, in, inwardly, uh, that, that you have been cleansed and washed clean by the blood of Christ. And that's your testimony as you get baptized, is that I have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. And Christ's death provides the means of that spiritual cleansing. And so His love has a sanctifying effect that we are progressively washed and cleansed of the presence of sin in our life. Not just of its power over us, but its, its, uh, its presence in us. And verse 27 continues and pictures the church's glorification one day as we stand before Jesus in splendor. In a real but spiritual sense, we are betrothed to Jesus right now. And the Holy Spirit, if you will, uh, if you'll be permit me to be a little bit irreverent, is in a sense our engagement ring. That He is the seal of the promise. To pick up on language from uh, chapter 4, verse 32, and chapter 1, verse 14, where He is the seal of the promise to come that we are um, committed to the Lord and He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit for the day of our wedding to Jesus. Our wedding day is yet future. It's described in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6-9 through at the marriage supper of the Lamb that takes place. And on that day, we will be completely holy. Completely. We will be, as the text says, uh, without spot or blemish, without any wrinkle. Some of you are like, an oil of Olay can't do that, right? Um, we will not have anything about us that is tainted by sin. Why do you get wrinkly? Because you're tainted by sin in your body and your soul. We will not even have those. Every trace of sin's effect on us, body and soul, will be wiped away. And we will stand before Jesus as a completely beautiful bride, in a sense, on that day. And verse 28 draws a conclusion from these things that husbands must love their wives in the same way that they love their own bodies because he who loves his, his wife loves himself. Now, how these things are connected might not be immediately clear, but we get more explanation in verses 29 and 30. How does a man love his own body? Verse 29 tells us, No one ever hated his own body, but nourishes it and cherishes it. We all feed our bodies. Amen? Some of us feed our bodies abundantly. But we take care of our nutritional needs. Amen? When we are hungry, we eat. We eat. Uh, when we're tired, we sleep. When we get cold, we look for a coat or gloves or a blanket or a fire to sit next to. We turn the heat up in the house. Why? Because we're taking care of our body and our body talks to us about what it needs and we serve those needs. When we're thirsty, we drink something. We like a variety of clothes and shoes. All of us have more than one pair of shoes. 
All of us have more than one set of clothes. Why? Because we want to adorn our bodies. Because we care about our bodies. We wash and we comb our hair and we trim our beards if we're men. And we use deodorants. Why? Because we love our bodies and we are trying to care for their needs. So, are you getting a picture of what this means? That loving your wives like you love your body includes caring for how many of her needs? All of them. All of them. The end of verse 29 and 30 help us understand a little more. We love our our bodies like this, and we love our wives, therefore, like this, like Christ loves the church, because we are part of Christ's body. So in other words, because we are, we belong to Christ and we are one with Christ, then we have to love our wives as He loves them in imitation of His love for us. His love for us and our membership in the body of Christ means we have to demonstrate Christ-like love to those who are likewise one with us. See, we are, in other words, we are one with Christ and our wives are one with us. And in the same way that you and I are all part of Christ's body if we're believers in Jesus, uh, your wife is part of your body. If you are a husband, you are one with her. And that's the point uh, of verse 31. If you don't recognize verse 31, uh, it's a quote from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where in the Garden of Eden, God explains, having created the woman, uh, his design and purpose for marriage which is a one flesh union that forms a new family. Uh, when you add one man and one woman in marriage, this is divine math, okay? So you add one man and one woman, and you get how many? One. You get one. That's what you symbolize when you, when you go to a wedding and you have the unity candle, right? And everybody takes their candle the bride takes her candle and the groom takes his candle and they light the one in the middle and then they blow out their own. Why? Because the two have become one. They are no longer separable. They're no longer separate from each other. The two have become one. And so in a sense, husbands like me, when we... Uh, pledge our undying fidelity and love and care and nourishment and cherishment of this woman before God and these witnesses, what we are doing is we are at that moment pledging to become one with her. And then as we go on the honeymoon, we experience one flesh union and we become one with her permanently in the sight of God. And so Paul says, verse 28, he who loves his wife loves himself. What's he saying? That that's really true. That she and you are part of the same entity. You have become one. And I don't have time to go into all of the detail here and all the theological uh, study that you can do on this, but did you know this? You might not know this. 
But in Genesis 2.24, John says the two will become one. It's composite unity. God uses the same word in Deuteronomy chapter 6 when He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Composite unity. In other words, you become one with her, men, in the same way that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. And your relationship exists in the image of God in imitation of the triune being. You have become one with her. You are no longer separated people. You and she are one before God. You are one flesh. And so love her like you love your own body because that is what she is and because you and she are both members of Jesus' own body. Verse 32 takes some explanation. Paul says this is a profound mystery. Some of you didn't know how profound a mystery this was. But this is a profound mystery with lots of implications. And Paul says it refers to Christ and the church. Here's what I think he means. I think that lots of people understand that Paul is explaining the relationship between husbands and wives in view of Christ and the church. But what they might not understand clearly is this, is it's not that Christ and the church are like a marriage. It's that marriage is like Christ and the church. That our marriages at their best imitate the higher and greater reality of the union between Christ and those whom He loves. And so in other words, even in the Garden of Eden when God was designing marriage, He was creating it in such a way that humans would have a limited and finite reflection of the relationship with, that God has with those whom He loves, a kind of profound and a deep oneness experienced nowhere else outside of God's own being. Marriage is, in other words, the highest form of human relationship because it imitates most closely the kind of uniting to Himself that God brings us into when He saves us through Christ. And so in that sense, marriage is a living enactment of the gospel by which a man lays his life down in love for his bride and unites her to himself as one flesh and loves her as deeply and as profoundly as it is humanly possible to love another person. And that brings us to verse 33, where Paul recaps this whole section by reminding husbands and wives what is God's, uh, what, what all this explanation of God's gospel purpose has given, why it's there, and to help us to understand and fulfill Jesus' loving command to us. He says, let each one of you love his wife as he loves himself. And wives respect their husbands. So now, here's the main application point of this text, in case you missed it. If you are a Christian husband, God is not suggesting. He is not encouraging. He is commanding you and me to love 
your wife to imitate Christ in self-sacrificial love for your wife. To imitate Christ in self-sacrificial love for your wife. What does it mean, practically speaking, to love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her? I want to just look back quickly at the text and consider a couple of things. First, to love your wife completely and self-sacrificially laying your whole life down for her good and her blessing. To love your wife completely and self-sacrificially laying your whole life down for her good and her blessing. Now, lest I be unclear, I'm not simply talking about being willing to take a bullet for her. That's obvious. Most men, and I include myself in this, most of us are really good at the grand gestures of life. Right? And so if there's an intruder in the house, we're the guy who grabs the pistol or the ball bat or uh, the flagpole or whatever we have handy to go investigate uh, that noise downstairs, right? We don't roll, roll over and say, honey, would you go downstairs and check that out, right? Uh, most of us are pretty good at the defense of hearth and home. Most of us are pretty good if it's, if it's her or you, it's going to be me. But loving like Jesus also includes laying your life down on smaller things, like treating her with gentleness and speaking with kindness. It includes not raising your voice to her. It includes being easy to please and frequently expressing appreciation rather than being demanding and critical and harsh. According to, your, to her needs, laying your life down may also mean things like vacuuming and doing dishes and raking the yard and even more uncomfortable things like writing a love note. You know, you're still supposed to do that after you stop dating. Still supposed to do that, right? Um, uh, maybe it also includes, according to your wife's needs, and Peter tells us, 1 Peter 3, verse 7, live with your wives in an understanding way. So you need to understand the particular woman that God gave you. But it may also include things like buying flowers, not only when it's her birthday or your anniversary, which you should not forget, or uh, Valentine's Day. All those things are obvious. All those things are expected, right? But you want to also buy them because it's a random Tuesday and you were thinking about her and you saw these and you thought that she would like them and you brought them home. Self-sacrificial love means scheduling a regular date night that you plan and you initiate and that for which you, if you have small children, secure the babysitter when your kids are little and need one. These things are also included in giving yourself up for her. So is refusing to pursue your hobbies. And here we're starting to get into meddling, right? 
refusing to pursue your hobbies in exactly the same way as you would if you were single, and so is working hard to provide for her and your children if God so blesses you with them. In other words, laying your life down for her like Christ loved the church is a lifetime of putting her first and putting her needs ahead of your own like Jesus did for us who are in the church. Amen? So, second, it means that your love for her has a sanctifying and glorifying purpose. It is for her benefit. Jesus loved the church in such a way that she is progressively getting freed from sin and getting closer to God. So your love for your wife should help her grow closer to God and to grow nearer to Him. Your love should put Christ's love for both of you on living display to her. Your love should help her to see and to love and to follow Jesus more easily because of how well you imitate Jesus in the love that you show to her. It will mean at times that you may need to confront her over sin even as you extend forgiveness for it, uh, just like Jesus does. It will definitely mean that you yourself will need to repent and to change your behavior when you yourself are confronted by her or by the Holy Spirit with your sin. It will mean that you lead and disciple your children well if you have them, and that you help them to know and to follow Christ, that you don't just lay all of that on her and say, you disciple the kids, honey, I've got to go to work. You lay your life down to glorifying and sanctifying purpose. It will mean taking her to church. Not going with her to church, but taking her to church. There's a difference. And finding a place to serve the body of Christ together there. It will mean praying with her and sharing the word of God with her and with your children. It will mean being a real man in every way that Jesus is a real man, in other words. And third, your love has a redemptive, gospel-declaring, God's image-revealing purpose. You are not your wife's Savior, amen? But you have become one with her in the same way that God makes us one with Him when we put our faith in Christ. So you and I die to ourselves and live for her blessing just like Jesus did. And you love her like you love your own body because Jesus loves you since you're His body. And when you do that, the power of the Gospel is made known and the story of the Gospel of Jesus' great love for His bride is retold in a living way as the great love we have for our brides is put on display in front of the watching world. So in other words, when somebody says, you know, you really have a great marriage, you can turn that around and you can say, you know, it's because of Jesus' marriage to us that we have a great marriage, because what we do is we imitate what Jesus did. Well, what did Jesus do? He died on the cross for our sins and He was raised from the dead and He's given us new life. Because of the new life we have, we imitate Him in the way we live toward each other. 
It's a gospel-declaring purpose. Let me ask a couple final questions like this. Who among us has a marriage like this? A marriage that imitates Jesus and the church. In our own strength, by our own power, approximately 0% of us. Who is equal to the, this task? Nobody who is merely a human. Certainly not me. But when we are filled by the Holy Spirit and we walk by the Spirit's power, then He enables this kind of love, this kind of marriage, this kind of beautiful, living, gospel testimony to the world and to one another. And so what I want to encourage us all to do is to earnestly seek the Lord and His help, not just today, but on every single day, that we might glorify God where it matters most with the people we love most, the people who are closest to us. Amen? So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You not only, not only have You so graciously given such amazing examples, such incredible testimony of Your love for us in Christ, but Father, You have given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who enters into us at the moment we put our trust in Christ and who is with us as the down payment guaranteeing our inheritance of eternal things for our entire life and into eternity. Father, we have a foretaste of glory even now. And Father, we pray that, that our marriages, that our homes would be equally a foretaste of glory. That we would see precisely how much You love us to even a greater degree than we are loved now. But Father, I pray that we might, husbands and wives, all reflect the beauty of the relationship of Christ in the church. That wives would lovingly follow and respect their husbands. And that husbands would lay down their lives and love for their wives. Father, help us because we need your help. We need your empowerment. We cannot do this on our own and will fail when we try. But filled by your Holy Spirit, Father, we can do all things. So, Father, I pray that we might experience the beauty and the glory of a Spirit-filled home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.